Now to the, uh, the climax of the day. Three years ago on this platform, I paid tribute to the late Father Paul Crane, who we remember with great affection. His successor as editor of Christian Order is our keynote speaker today. The change of style from one editor to the other was quite noticeable. In fact, I must admit to feeling somewhat uncomfortable with the new style until I realized that Rod Peed was saying the same things that Father Crane had said and written, but now in a perhaps more forceful language. A spade was now quite clearly a spade. I then also realized that Rod had reinvented the wheel. Wheel not tolerate dissent. Wheel not remain silent. Wheel not give up. Wheel not go away. Now with four wheels like that we can go far. Yes, I still miss Father Crane, but Rod Peed has won me over. Today he is making one of his rare public speaking appearances. Will you join me please in welcoming onto the platform the editor of Christian Order, Mr. Rod Peed. How can you say we are wise and the law of the Lord is with us? Because from prophet to priest, everyone deals falsely. They have healed the wound of my people lightly, saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. This divine rebuke was delivered by the prophet Jeremiah to the hierarchy of the house of Judah several thousand years ago. Yet, how contemporary it sounds. In fact, if we alter just one word in this passage, tying it into the theme of this conference, we surely have here the Lord's judgment of his smug and increasingly faithless priestly hierarchies in Britain and Ireland today. As he relives the agony of his passion in surveying the dissolute and dying local churches in these parts, I imagine he would have his prophet deliver to his priestly elect an almost identical message, declaring unto them, How can you say we are wise and the law of the Lord is with us? Because from prophet to priest, everyone deals falsely. They have healed the wound of my people lightly, saying, Unity, unity, when there is no unity. <clears throat> Reverend fathers and sisters, ladies and gentlemen, I am not here to give you a fine-sounding theological treatise on truth and unity, nor have I accepted the kind invitation 
to address you here today to make a feel-good speech that warms your hearts and sends you all home feeling comfortable. Why should we feel comfortable and self-satisfied with our puny efforts when all about us is pride and ignorance, betrayal and anarchy, dissolution and decay? When Christ is suffering in his mystical body as never before because our faith is neither hot nor cold but so lukewarm. No, instead, like Father Conlon, Pat and Daphne, I'm going to do something completely different. Tear up the textbook on public speaking. I'm going to tell you the truth because therein lies the way to unity. I'm going to say the hard things about the shepherds, about the clergy and about ourselves. I'm going to deliver a blunt, Jeremiah-like address because as God's own spokesman, prophets like Jeremiah reveal to us that just as there is a time for subtlety and gentleness and massaging egos, there comes a time when direct, forceful, personal, plain speaking is all that is left. Now, since the time we have is so very short, and I've already had to ruthlessly edit out so much of what I wanted to say, I would ask that if you feel the urge to clap at any stage, please resist that urge. Save your energy and thereby win me a few precious extra minutes because it's not applause I'm after, but a rethink about the attitude and contribution of faithful Catholics for the fight of what is left for the faith in these aisles. This is the plan of attack. We'll first undertake a Cook's tour of ecclesiastical reality today, of bishops and clergy as agents of disunity. We'll then very briefly consider two of the chief modernist weapons employed to undermine Catholic truth and unity. And finally, consider how the self-defeating mentality of many faithful Catholics has also helped reduce Catholicism in the United Kingdom to the same farcical level as slapstick Anglicanism. Above all, this talk is directed to correcting that suicidal tendency in our own ranks. But let's get down to business. As I said, for all the endless babble about unity that gushes from the ecclesiastical establishment, from the bishops via their lay-funded, interminable conferences and committees, plans and pastorals, bureaus and bulletins, for all this expensive, time-wasting, self-indulgent blather about unity, there is no unity. For as the theme of this conference recalls, there can only be love and charity and unity in truth. And truth in this tiny and rapidly disappearing outpost of the Universal Church, if it hasn't been technically forsworn, has been effectively abandoned by a hierarchy that has broken ranks with the Holy Father in deciding for itself what to teach in union with him. We all know about the curse of cafeteria Catholicism, but the cafeteria Catholics are simply mimicking their pick-and-choose prelates. What are we to say about a bishop like Ambrose Griffiths, who last year, not long after John Paul's special call to honour the Sabbath, 
cancels the Sunday Mass obligation of his flock on the first Sunday of Advent so that a parish can attend an ecumenical service in a Protestant church. What of Archbishop Bowen's recent refusal to ban public dissidents from holding their dissenting conference on church property on the grounds that it might be imprudent and counterproductive, even while he acknowledged its subversive nature and the risk of spiritual damage to his flock. And what are we to make of Bishop Vincent Malone's recent lauding of dissent from the magisterium, which he called critical loyalty, echoing Basil Hume's description of dissent as loyal opposition, in complete disregard for the Holy Father's constant exhortations that such dissent is incompatible with the Catholic faith. Truth, unity, consider the almost surreal situation of Portsmouth's Bishop Hollis, an an enthusiastic supporter of the bitterly anti-Catholic feminist and teacher of paganism and witchcraft, Mary Gray, who he foisted on the hapless students of his diocese. If his Portsmouth bureaucracy is not busy training, quote, lay people to preside at the Eucharist, unquote, they are flying in the likes of Australian Kevin Treston, a shameless public purveyor of heresy to address diocesan religious educators with the bishop's blessing. Treston's mentality can be summed up in one simple phrase in his RE text, a phrase which cuts to the heart of the modernist era which this conference has sought to address and counter. Religious truth, he writes, is elusive. And so it follows. As the tireless Daphne MacLeod has documented in Christian Order that Treston calls into question or denies virtually every tenet of the Catholic faith, just the sort of person that you'd want to be instructing the people who will be teaching your children the faith. Unity in truth. Let us ponder the extraordinary fact that the egregious Bishop Constant of Leeds was unable to give a simple affirmation of Catholic faith when confronted by a series of fundamental questions posed by the BBC's Today program last year, which included, do you believe in the literal fact of the resurrection of Christ? Do you believe there will be a second coming of Christ? Do you believe Adam and Eve literally existed? Is there a purgatory? Are all of the Ten Commandments applicable today? About such basics of the Catholic faith, the Bishop of Leeds replied, quote, none of the questions is capable of a one-word answer, which means that for most people, any answer given is not merely inadequate, but simply untrue, unquote. This is the man who for some years oversighted Catholic education in this country, the man responsible for the development of a sex ed program for Catholic children so foul that the previous Archbishop of Birmingham condemned it outright and banned it from his archdiocese. 
Bishop Constant, of course, is also the prelate who recently refused to consecrate a refurbished church until the parish moved the tabernacle, the earthly dwelling place of our Lord and King, from the centre of the sanctuary to a side altar, at a cost to the distressed parish priest and his parishioners of a mere extra £60,000. Well might we ask, as the late Father Paul Crane often did about David Constant, how did that man ever become a bishop? But then, one surely has to ask the same question about Archbishop Vincent Nichols, the darling of the dissident feminists on the executive of the National Board of So-Called Catholic Women, which tells us everything we need to know about him. Archbishop Nichols is renowned for welcoming Humana Vitae dissenter Charles Curran, the doyen of post-conciliar Judases, to Upholland Northern Institute while rector there to conduct consecutive summer schools. And yet Paul VI stated in Humana Vitae that in order to preserve the unity of the Christian people, it is necessary that all should speak the same language as the magisterium of the church. Therefore, as regards the foundational, pivotal matter of contraception, he declared that the first task of priests, quote, is to expound the church's teaching on marriage without ambiguity, unquote. I guess, like Archbishop Nichols, Archbishop Murphy O'Connor, too, has just never got around to reading the encyclical. Since the new Archbishop of Westminster, picking up where his Humana Vitae dissenting predecessor left off, has informed the daily papers that in respect of contraception, people should, quote, make up their own minds, unquote. Is it any wonder that Father Crane whose ill health kept him from attending the first Faith of Our Fathers conference, wanted so very dearly to come here and address you all, to stand on this stage, as he often told me he wanted to do, and simply say about the bishops, who do they think they are? The plain-speaking Cardinal Silvio Oddi said the same thing during an interview with an American journalist in 1983. Some bishops have come to believe their own infallibility, he said. They are wrong and far from the teaching of God. They are condemned. They are condemned most of all before the church. And I should add that following this statement, as recorded in my book, Death of a Catholic Parish, the journalist asked his eminence if the arguments of the likes of Augustine Aquinas and Cardinal Newman were correct that in the words of Aquinas, if the faith be in imminent peril, prelates ought to be accused by their subjects even in public. The Pope's close friend and colleague answered, absolutely without question. And if any further proof be required that the faith is in imminent peril, we need only consider that since it is the bishop who forms the clergy, such prelates as we've just glimpsed have inevitably spawned a generation of belligerently disobedient and dissenting clergy dividing and dissolving parishes up and down the country. 
clerics who, make no mistake, have developed a real hatred of Catholic truth. Like the enraged Portsmouth priest who derided Catholics who politely but firmly defended the faith against error during questions after a talk by a renowned heretic, calling these orthodox laity the thought police, demanding their removal from the building and shouting across the room at them, they are the dying embers of a church I want nothing to do with, quote unquote. Or like a parish priest in Essex who recently, with a nod and wink from his bishop, broke every rule in the Catholic book by inviting a female Anglican vicar to preach the sermon at his 6pm Mass on the 22nd of January this year, and who, in response to a question from a protesting parishioner, a Christian order reader, as to whether he would obey a direction from the Vatican to cancel a lady vicar's visit, replied defiantly, no, that wouldn't make any difference. And the cost to that parish in souls of such premeditated priestly disobedience is representative of the Catholic meltdown we now face. Until relatively recently, our subscriber explained in a letter to the Vatican alerting him to the situation, our parish had a congregation of about 3,000. That number is now 1,000. About 2,000 have abandoned the faith. The bishops, of course, justify their complicity in all this disobedience and dissent by regurgitating the magic mantra, dialogue. It is dialogue, you see, rather than prayer, penance and pronouncement that's going to save and unite us all. Well, we'd need to devote another conference to discussing the difference between true dialogue and counterfeit dialogue. But since I only have minutes rather than days available to me to treat this subject, let me say just a very few words about dialogue, since it is a major, major weapon in the modernist arsenal of undermining Catholic unity and truth. Dialogue, of course, as presently understood, means not holding strongly to anything in case you offend someone who doesn't hold the same position. And it rests on the new secular super-virtue embraced by our shepherds, tolerance, perhaps epitomised in Bishop Malone defining dissent as critical loyalty. Father Felix Silvani has observed that in times of schism and error, to cloud or distort the proper sense of words is a fruitful artifice of Satan. And just as the meaning of dialogue has been distorted to serve the ends of modernism, so too tolerance. It used to mean simply the act of enduring, tolerating some evil or suffering that couldn't be helped. It now means the opposite of that. Tolerance now means avoiding conflict and getting along with everyone no matter what they hold. Whereas Cardinal Ratzinger stated in May 1998 that one cannot entertain a notion of communion in which the chief pastoral value is that of avoiding conflicts. Whereas Belloc understood that truth comes by conflict, today 
consensus comes from tolerance, and the truth be damned. Cannibalism? Call it an eating disorder if you must, but for heaven's sake, don't show your intolerance by saying so in public. Catholicism? Call it a path to truth if you must, but for goodness sake, don't go upsetting people and embarrassing the bishop by talking about the one true church, by stating that God wants everybody to be a Catholic and that non-Catholic Christians in good faith already belong to the church and that their wish for unity can only be fulfilled by returning to their true fold. And so, false tolerance has led to false ecumenism, entailing interminable discussion, which has led to nothing but the capitulation of the Catholic side. We need only consider the then Bishop Cormac Murphy O'Connor's capitulation in the Arctic discussions with the Anglicans. It is hardly reassuring to recall that after years of dialogue with the Protestants, what the present incumbent of Westminster saw as a substantial agreement on essential points of doctrine, the watchdog of orthodoxy in Rome saw as compromising basic tenets of the faith, like the mass of sacrifice, the real presence, the nature of the priesthood, primacy and jurisdiction of the Pope, infallibility and indefectibility, the authority of general councils, and on and on. This is how Cardinal Ratzinger's congregation summarised its lengthy assessment of the ecclesiastical verbiage that filled the final report tabled by Archic after years of dialogue. Certain formulations in the report are not explicit enough to ensure that they exclude interpretations not in harmony with the Catholic faith. Certain affirmations are inexact and not acceptable as Catholic doctrine. Truth, unity, through dialogue? Archbishop Murphy O'Connor's embrace of counterfeit dialogue was only surpassed by his predecessor Cardinal Hume's embrace of the nefarious Common Ground Initiative, which seeks the impossible reconciliation of modernist error and Catholic truth. As someone summarised in the American journal Homolytic and Pastoral Review, this so-called initiative supports, however insidiously, contraception and abortion, pushes for married and female priests, fights for homosexual rights and same-sex sacramental marriage, argues for the dissolution of the indissolubility of marriage, opposes the magisterium at every turn, sometimes publicly and vociferously, sometimes secretly and furtively. This is the destructive agenda underlying the Common Ground Initiative, the modernist dialoguer's big idea for healing the divisions in the church which they themselves have sown. The initiative that George Cardinal Basil Hume was still promoting on his deathbed. So I just want to observe that this sort of endless, post-conciliar, via media dialogue, beloved of the episcopate and its clerocracy and bureaucracy and media lackeys in Britain, is not Catholic.
after disciplining and excommunicating dissenters in his diocese a few years ago, the admirable Bishop Bruskovitz of Nebraska summed it up when he said, whoever heard of the fire brigade dialoguing with the fire? As the renowned, as the renowned Italian philosopher Romano Amerio states in Iota Runum, his masterful tome on the roots of the post-conciliar crisis, there is a dialogue that converts and a dialogue that perverts, by which one party is detached from truth and led into error. It is this latter, the dialogue of perversion, which holds sway throughout Britain and Ireland today. So, we've briefly considered the shepherds and the clergy they're formed in their own dissident image, not for the first time in the church in these parts, as agents of schism and disunity. And we've quickly looked at the curse of counterfeit dialogue and tolerance, two major semantic weapons of deconstruction and disunity. Now, perhaps you're thinking at this point, this is all good and well, but we live this horror and scandal daily. We know this. Do we? If we know this, if we are really aware of all this, why do we resist tailoring our prayer life and our thoughts and our actions accordingly? If we consider ourselves so aware and savvy about this travesty of truth and unity, then why, as the Jesuit Father James Shaw states, are Catholics so wimpy? The professor of political philosophy at Georgetown University in Washington and a renowned champion of orthodoxy, Father Shaw was reflecting on the present Holy Father's continual references for the necessity of Catholics to be martyrs for the faith, the frequency of which references, by the way, are unprecedented in the history of the papacy. And he was setting this papal preoccupation with martyrdom against the reflections of the renowned philosopher Joseph Pieper about Catholics who just want to be left alone to live their life in quiet and virtue. It is a liberal illusion, wrote Pieper, to assume that you can consistently act justly without ever incurring risks. Risks for your immediate well-being, the tranquility of your daily routine, your possessions, your good name, your honour. In extreme instances, liberty, health and life itself. And having pondered these points, Father Shaw asked these questions which seem to me especially pertinent to the faithful Catholic remnant in contemporary Britain. Have we been living this liberal illusion for so long that we no longer notice that we are not acting justly? that we are not taking risks because we do not, in fact, believe. Like the old analogy about the frog, which will jump out of a pot of hot water, that when placed in a pot of cold water will sit there happily 
as the water temperature is raised imperceptibly one degree each hour until he boils to death without knowing it. So the polluted air of dialogue and tolerance within and without the church, which we passively inhale, has indeed quietly, relentlessly, imperceptibly choked a good deal of supernatural life out of ostensibly faithful Catholics. This has happened throughout the Catholic West, but it has taken a particular toll on the English outpost of the church militant, which has been softened up, dumbed down and disarmed like no other. Why? Because the normally admirable patience, diffidence and decency of the English character has led, as Father Crane put it some years ago, to the complacent ignorance of so many English Catholics who live in a world full of decent chaps and decent chaps would never intend the church any harm. So although things seem less volatile on the surface here, Catholics in this country are in even deeper trouble than their less acquiescent English-speaking cousins overseas because there exists here a crushing preponderance of orthodox laity and clergy living this liberal illusion that we can defend Christ and Catholic truth without conflict and the unpleasantness of raised voices and pointed fingers. Even after 30 years of scandal and decay involving the loss of over a million practicing Catholics, which continues unabated at the rate of somewhere between 600 and 1,000 souls per week, not including lost conversions, these Orthodox, who hide their faint hearts behind a mask of prudence and civility and piety, would still rather tut-tut and decry those prepared to call a spade a spade, those willing to label disgraceful prelates a disgrace. In some, too many in our ranks, including those who consider themselves pillars of the Orthodox fight, are more worried about upsetting people than they are about upsetting God. I was interested this morning to hear Daphne refer to such types, these false optimists, as Pollyanna Catholics. Well, within the broad range of Pollyanna Orthodox in England, the worst of all are what I call the jolly hockey sticks, the establishment Catholics who have undermined the Orthodox fight for far too long. The jolly hockey sticks are the sort of people who confuse the transience of worldly op optimism and stiff upper lip stoicism with Christian hope rooted in Christ crucified, to whom Englishness, it seems, is more important than the faith and souls, and who would be appalled to think that the likes of Pat McKeever and myself have been let loose to speak plainly at a conference like this. In fact, it will interest you to know that some among their number instituted a whispering campaign to keep people away from this conference for that very reason. They and their supporters prefer to avert their eyes from stark reality in order to preserve, as Father Crane said, their illusory, sanitised English world full of decent chaps 
who would never conspire against the church. Well, the problem with closing your eyes to reality is that when you open them again, the reality remains and more frightful than ever. And the reality, as the selection of Episcopal horrors I paraded earlier testifies, is that there is a certain spirit in the hierarchy of this country that goes beyond arrogance or cowardice. It is alien, it is organised, it is purposeful, it is inimical to the faith. It has constructed a local church in which orthodoxy, that is truth, is considered extreme and modernism, that is heresy, is considered mainstream. A church in which a priest or layman can claim to be a Catholic while denying with impunity what it is that makes him one, where the de facto schismatics who have in substance separated themselves from the church claim not to be separate. And this includes the bishops who, as we've seen earlier, protect, foster and promote such separateness. This counterfeit local church built on the quicksand of counterfeit dialogue and tolerance was erected by Archbishop Derek Warlock and Cardinal Hume and its oppressive spirit was captured by a faithful senior Westminster priest who confided a few years ago, the church in this country is run by a clerical tyranny. Indeed, a suffocating liberal clericalism which allowed Cardinal Hume to rebuke Daphne MacLeod, a champion of orthodoxy, for, quote, encouraging dissent, unquote, while simultaneously praising modernists, the enemies of orthodoxy, for their, quote, loyal opposition, unquote. That this tyranny is institutionalised was confirmed by a comment a Liverpool parish priest let slip on Radio Merseyside on the 13th of May 1996. Archbishop Derrick did say to me once, said the priest, that as long as the bishops stuck together, there's no way in which a man of conservative ilk, that is, a faithful Catholic priest loyal to Rome, could be imposed upon any diocese in our country. It is precisely the reality of this alien spirit and modernist dictatorship of the hierarchy maintained by its sycophantic media machine that the jolly hockey sticks will not confront because they want to be seen as respectable by the very clergy who are Christ's greatest antagonists and because they think that despite the present strife, It'll all work out in the end, and in the meantime, we should just get along. All be pals together, even while the faith is being treated with contempt by the sort of prelates who, the Vatican warned last year, have reduced the priesthood of Jesus Christ to a career option and the good life. 